0: Welcome again to worship, and uh, let me introduce myself. If you're a guest, my name is Wayne. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm looking forward to spending some time with you today looking at Scripture. We're going to read from the book of Zechariah today. It's a little bit hard to find. It's at the very end of the Old Testament, so if you'll grab a Bible from the pew rack in front of you, if you don't own a Bible, you'll find that there are some page numbers on the screen behind me. If you find Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, go back just literally a few pages and you come to Zechariah. We're also going to read out of Haggai, just one verse as well today, which is at the book immediately before Zechariah. And I, I, I had a very interesting experience happen to me this past week that sets the stage for where we're going today. I, um, Leslie and I and, and our kids all had Thanksgiving together up at our son's home Uh, He and his wife recently bought a house in Michigan. They live in Ann Arbor and they wanted us to see it. And so we all went up there for Thanksgiving, had a wonderful time. And for the most part, I think everybody in, well, all apart from me, I won't speak for my lovely wife. Everybody was young. Uh, I mean, there were lots of people around and uh, people from, you know, family members on both sides of the family together. And so it just seemed like I was in my 20s again because it felt like everybody there was in their 20s. And I was just a 20-year-old hanging out with 20-year-olds, you know, and it was a great time together until uh, the morning arrived the next day and I went into the bathroom and I looked in the mirror and this 55-year-old fella looked back at me and I'm going, who is that? And what happened to the guy that I, all weekend long, I've been mean, this 24-year-old hanging out and feeling 24, and suddenly I wasn't anymore, and I was not impressed at all. And it raises the question, where did, that, where did Where did? the last 30 years go, first of all? And then what happened to the body of that 24-year-old looking, <laughs> and, and that was not a pretty sight. Now I know why we wear shirts once we get to a particular, oh, goodness gracious, I'm going, so it's raised a number of questions for me, um, and, uh, and uh, <laughs> some of you go, yeah, we want you to keep your shirt on, Wayne, please. <laughs> so I, I have a list of sort of questions that seem to have come out of that and also out of the reading of Zechariah, and um, it's like, okay, where did, where did that 24-year-old go, and, and who am I now 30 years later, and what does it mean for me to exist Does my body have a soul or is my soul, um, does it exist apart from my body? And if that's the case, when this body dies, what happens to the soul? And you know, what happens to my loved ones who've already died? Um, I mean, are they with God in heaven? There's some scriptures that go that direction. Are they sleeping, waiting for the resurrection of the dead? Those kinds of questions. And if they are in heaven, where is heaven and what's it look like? And, uh if you don't get to go to heaven, where do you go? Well, Scripture says you go to hell. Well, what's that look like? And where's that? I want to stay away from that place. Uh, That'd be a good goal. And, um, you know, what's the resurrection of the dead going to be like? And, you know, Scripture says that They go to heaven, people go to heaven, and there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth, and so is heaven going to, if we die and we get to the end of all things, and is heaven, are we going to go to heaven, or is heaven going to come to us on a new earth? On a new earth, I've got, well, I've got a list of questions that um, I think most of us probably do, if you think about it. We all have these questions, and sometimes you almost feel, well, I want to ask these questions, and you can, can, may, may I suggest that God gives you the right to ask those questions without being heretical in any way. It's appropriate to ask those questions and to figure them out. And so um, if you've had questions like that, then I've got good news for you. Zechariah begins to answer them in many ways. Uh, What we're doing is we are concluding a sermon series today that we've been involved in. Uh, We started it in the winter uh, for six weeks, and now we're coming up with another six weeks now. Today's the last day of that. And we're looking at the book of Zechariah. We've been looking at all the minor prophets of Scripture. The minor prophets are the last 12 books of the Old Testament. And as I've said each and every week that we've been looking at these, uh, they are not minor because the messages don't mean anything. They're called minor because they're very brief, In page numbers, Zechariah is one of the longer ones at 14 chapters, but some of them are just one or two chapters long, and so they're called minor prophets. And as we've done each and every week, because I'm hopefully, hopefully one of the goals was for you to get this in your head, I want to set the stage for where these prophets are all located, and particularly Zechariah today. If you've been with us, then you know that we start each of these sermons by telling everybody um, the the date and the time of what took place. I've told you before that David, the, probably the most premier king of Israel, was king at 1,000 BC, 1,000 years before Jesus was born. And then, uh, in the ensuing generations that came after David, the nation split into two. Basically, the various sons and grandsons and great-grandsons, they all wanted little kingdoms, in a nutshell, that's generally speaking. And so, over a period of time, the nation got split into two. And the group in the north eventually became known. They took the name Israel and the group in the south, they took the name Judah. And God had said to this Jewish people, if you walk with me, I'll multiply you, and you will will experience my blessings. And as long as you walk with me, everything's going to be hunky-dory, basically. Well, the people in the north decided they weren't going to walk with God, again, making the long story short. And in 721, as the um, Assyrian Empire was beginning to increase, they got caught in the shuffle of empires, and literally, they were overrun by the Assyrians. The people of Israel in the north disappeared, and we haven't heard from them since. Seriously, nobody survived that. The people in the south lived for a longer period of time. They walked with God for a longer period of time. And in 586, they too began to wander away from God. And as the Assyrian Empire was declining and the Babylonian Empire was increasing, they got caught in that shuffle and they were overrun by the Babylonians. In that case, though, they were carted off to slavery in Babylon. And the people who are Jewish today are all descendants, for the most part, are descendants of the people of Judah. In, that was happened in 586 B.C., and 50 years later and for the next 20 years or so after that, but beginning in 536 B.C., the uh, king of Babylon said, okay, all of you Jewish people can go home, go back to Judah. Now, by that time, the people who had been carved off into slavery 50 years later were already dead because... Um, lifespan was under 40. So it's their kids and their grandkids who begin a trek back from Babylon back to Judah. And so they begin making their way back to Judah. And they kept the name Judah for a number of generations until they began to fill up the whole space of what eventually once again became known as Israel. So that by the time you got to Jesus, all these people of Judah who now have families and they've extended, they've grown and they've covered the whole nation and they are known as Israel again. Does that make sense? When they began that trek back from Babylon in 536 B.C., they began coming back to Judah and got back to Jerusalem, and the temple, the place of worship, had been destroyed. And their primary responsibility from 536 on was that they were to rebuild the temple. And in 520, that began to take place. As a matter of fact, if you look with me in Haggai, I want to show you how this all plays together. Haggai is the book right before Zechariah, okay? Take a look at the very first verse of Haggai and make note of when Haggai was writing, okay? We read this, in the second year of King Darius. So how long has Darius been on the throne at this point? Come on, you all are sharp. (laughs) Two years, right? In the second year. Boy, you all, hello! (laughs) Okay, so how long has he been king? Two years, right? In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came to, to the prophet Haggai. Does that make sense? So because we know when Darius became king, we know this is in 520 BC. And Haggai, Haggai was written so that the people, he was basically saying, we looked at two weeks ago, we want you, God's calling you to rebuild the temple. Now, look with me the first verse of Zechariah then and see this, what time that is set. In the eighth month of the... Second year of Darius, same time, only the in Haggai was six months in, right? This is eight months in, so the difference is two months. You are catching on very fast. Now, we've left this passage of this looking at Zechariah to last in this series. One, two reasons. One, it's the most difficult to understand. So we thought that we'd let you catch up and figure it all out. And then secondly, it has a lot to do about Christmas. So it seemed like it would be appropriate to do it after Thanksgiving as a step into this. And it's very difficult because it has all kinds of visions and allegorical language in it that you have to read between the lines and know what's going on. And the best thing to think of it is this way. The first nine chapters of Zechariah deal with visions and looking at the world as it was in 520 BC. Haggai, the book we looked at initially right there, was written for right now, this very moment, 520. Zechariah is is written for 520 and the next few years. And the first nine chapters speak to the rebuilding of the temple and what it means to be people of Judah, what it means to be people who walk after God. But then beginning in in chapter 9, halfway through chapter 9, there's a big shift. And it moves from not only about 520 and 519 BC, but it begins talking about what it's going to be like when the Messiah comes. And I'm going to see if I can give you some illustration of that in both cases. Zechariah chapter 5, turn there, and since this is in the first part of the book, this is talking directly to the situation at 520 BC, and again, it's very difficult to understand at first glance, so let me see if I can explain it to you. Haggai has these visions, he says, I looked, and there before me was a flying scroll, Now, I I don't know what, this is almost like a Walt Disney movie, you know, where you got this big scroll, uh, you know, this papyrus reed rolled on either end and it's flying through the air. It's a vision. What do you see? I answered, I see a flying scroll, 20 cubits long, 10 cubits wide. In other words, it's about 20 by, I mean, 30 feet by 15 feet. This huge, flying carpet-type-looking thing through the air, okay? And this is how he sees this. I don't know. Is it really coming? It's a vision, all right? And then this is the explanation of the vision. He said to me, this is the curse. This is a curse. This is a curse that is going out over the whole land. For according to what it says on one side, every thief will be banished. And according to what it says on the other, everyone who swears falsely will be banished. Now, again... Reading between the lines, remember that two of the Ten Commandments. One was you can't, you can't be a thief, you can't steal. The other is you can't speak falsely, you shouldn't lie. And so, for some reason or other, there's this scroll is repeating these commandments. And here's what's going on. This is the curse that is going out over the whole land, verse 3. For according to what it says on one side, every thief will be banished. And according to what it says on the other, everyone who swears falsely will be banished. And the Lord Almighty declares... I will send it out. I'm going to send this scroll, and it will enter the house of the thief and the house of anyone who swears falsely by my name. It will remain in that house and destroy it completely, both its timbers and its stones. So Zechariah is writing, seeing this vision. He's writing in 520 BC, and apparently there's a problem that the people of Judah are stealing and speaking falsely against each other. And God says, look, you just got back from Babylon. You should have remembered that if you didn't do things right, there's gonna, if you have sin in the land, it's going to be a problem. As a matter of fact, what's fascinating about this is that this 30, by 50, 30 feet by 15 feet scroll, it's the same size as the Holy of Holies inside the temple. And the Holy of Holies was always the place where God's presence resided. And basically saying, even if you build the temple, which you're doing right now, at 520 BC, you're rebuilding the temple, so my presence will come and be in there. But if you have sin in the middle of where you're living, I can't live there. I can't live where there's sin. And so I'm going to destroy the sin that is in the land. So, Fascinating. You have got to read between the lines. Let me see if I can show you another example then of Zechariah chapter 9 this time, where the where the focus of the of the book has shifted from right then at 520 BC to now a different time. Five chapter 9, verse 9. See if you recognize this. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion, shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the fall of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim. This, In other words, I'll get rid of the uh, the war that's taking place in a place called Ephraim. And the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. He, whoever's coming on this donkey, will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Does this sound familiar? What's this from? Palm Sunday, right? So here's what I want you to see. I want you to see if you can... Zechariah is speaking to the people of 520 and they are acknowledging and they all know there's sin in the land. And he's building credibility. And then at the same moment, a few chapters later, he's writing about something that has yet to happen. This is 520 BC. This is 500 years or so before Jesus arrives. Look with me in Matthew chapter 21 now and see how this played out. My point is I'm starting to say, see, have you see how Zechariah is building, building credibility as to what he's got to say. Matthew chapter 21. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. So, and now Jesus is going to recite Zechariah. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so we're tying Matthew, the story of Jesus, to Zechariah 500 years before. And what happens? The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. So think this through if you can. 520 BC, Zechariah is talking about we've got sin in the land. They all can recognize that and that's going to destroy us. Oh, and by the way, sometime in the future, someone's going to come into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. We move forward 500 years, what happens? Somebody comes into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. So, he's, so for our sake, we can see credibility between what he wrote in 520 and what happened when Jesus came along. Well, if that's the case, look with me then in Zechariah chapter 14. I'm kind of building a case here. You gotta, you gotta hang with me and string all these thoughts together, all right? Zechariah chapter 14, beginning at verse one. A day of the Lord is coming. Jerusalem, when your a day of the Lord is coming Jerusalem, when your possessions will be planted and divided up within your very walls. I will gather all the nations to Jerusalem to fight against it. The city will be captured, the houses ransacked, and the women raped. Half of the city will go into exile, but the rest of the people will not be taken from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights on a day of battle. On that day, and at this point, this is no longer allegorical language. This is what's going to happen, according to Zechariah. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem. And the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley with half the mountains moving north and half moving south. You will flee by my mountain valley, for it will extend to Azel. You will flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come, catch this, and all the holy ones with him. On that day, there'll be neither sunlight nor cold, frosty darkness. It will be a unique day, a day known only to the Lord, with no distinction between day and night. And when evening comes, there'll be light. On that day, living water will flow out from Jerusalem, half of it east to the Dead Sea and half of it west to the Mediterranean Sea in summer and in winter. And then verse 9, verse 9 is the culmination of all the minor prophets. Everything the minor prophets have had to say, all that has had to say, lands in verse 9 of Zechariah 14.9. You know what it says? The Lord will be king over the whole earth, and on that day there'll be one Lord, and his name the only name. So let me see if I can show you where we are. 520 BC, we've got sin in the land. Oh, and by the way, there's going to be a guy sometime along, the, sometime along the way who's a Messiah. He's going to come, and he's going to ride on a donkey. We are now entering into the Advent Christmas season. What are we recognizing? We are recognizing that Jesus did come and that come Easter, Palm Sunday, he did ride on a donkey. We see the credibility 500 years apart. And then you get to Zechariah 14 and it's something that's not occurred yet. In other words, he's now writing, after building that credibility, he's now writing about the second coming of Jesus Christ when Jesus' feet literally will touch the Mount of Olives. I don't know how that works. (sighs) I don't know if it's like that. I don't know how he gets there. But somehow or other Jesus' feet end up on the Mount of Olives and literally that that hillside splits in half. It hasn't happened yet. Zechariah is full of prophecies that are for that time, for the time of Jesus' messianic prophecies and messianic prophecies about his second coming. And those of us who are Christians say we believe that. We do, Christians believe in the second coming of Jesus Christ. And it's not some sort of fatalistic approach, you know, well, you know, that, you know, that it's all, somewhere along the line, it's all going to come along. You know, let me give you this observation about what I've learned and been reminded of as we've made our way through these prophets, through these prophets, and particularly Zechariah today. I don't have a fatalistic approach to life. I don't have, well, God's in charge, so I'll just sit back and, you know. God's got bigger. God's got a bigger brain than me. I'm glad God's if 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 God didn't have a bigger brain than me, then we've got a problem. You didn't have to say Amen quite so loudly. <laughs> I'll let you all try. You can all say Amen if you want. God's got a bigger brain than me. Uh, there you go. All right. <laughs> it's not like oh God's got a, God's got it all in charge. Well, yeah, but it's a faith-filled approach to life. says, God's got it all in charge. And in the areas where I can't figure it out, okay, I can't figure it out. There are parts of Zechariah that I can't figure out. I don't know when this second coming of Jesus is going to occur. Jesus himself said he doesn't know when it's going to occur. But there's a day of the Lord coming just as surely as he came the first time. And Zechariah said, 500 years ahead of time, I'll build credibility for those of us in our age and it'll happen so the second coming is going to happen as well. I think we have to get, we have to change our view of God. You know, we, we have this idea that God's some big watchmaker in the sky and he got all the little pieces of creation together and then he put them in a big watch called the cosmos and pushed the, pushed the button and the second hand start going and he goes back. Oh man, I'm just going to wander back and see what happens. I'll just watch from the, from the sidelines. If that's the case, then I got a problem with that kind of God. I do. You know why? Because then God is culpable for genocide. God's culpable for what happened in Rwanda or what the Nazis did. Or God's culpable for the evil that visited upon our nation on 9-11 in a place called the Twin Towers and the Pentagon and a field in Pennsylvania. Because if God is just watching and saying, we'll see what they do, then I don't know if I like that kind of God. But you know what Christians say? Christians say that God is involved in history. That God did set the world in motion, yes. But he has a plan. He has a plan that each individual will walk with him and know him and live life to the fullest. And if the people of Israel would have only done that throughout all the minor prophets, their lives would have been so much better. The people in the north would not have been wiped out. The people in the south would not have gone into slavery. They would never have had to rebuild the temple. Our world would be different today. But I'm convinced of this, that God has his finger on the course of human history. And as we go from creation to a new creation, God creates the world and then the humans come along and we mess it up. But he still has in mind in the long run there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. Revelation says there's a new time coming when new heaven and earth will come and pain and tears and crying will be no more. There'll be a new order of things and the struggles that we have in life will be done with. That was the way it was supposed to be in the first place. And we as humans have messed it up. And every, this is God's will. And every time we get off course, God says, oh, I got this flying scroll thing, and I'll bring you back in line. Now, we don't see the scroll, perhaps, but that's the point. God is saying, if you get off course, I'm, I'm going to bring you back. I'm not, it's not fatalism, whatever happened? que Sarah, No. God's directing the course of human history. You know what? He's directing the course of your life personally. There is a purpose to what we do. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians put it this way. He said, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, if you walk with Christ, this is for you. You're a brother and sister of Paul the Apostle. Therefore, my dear brother, my dear, my my beloved, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. You want to know why you should give yourself fully to the ways of God and the things that God's got lined out for you? Because your labor in the Lord is not in vain. It's not a fatalistic whatever, whatever. No. There's a purpose to what God has in store for you. There's a purpose to what God has in store for this world. We are not, people of Christian faith, we don't belong to an Eastern religion. What do Eastern religions believe? Eastern religions believe that there's a cycle of life. And I get it, you know, the flowers die and then they compost in the ground and all that. So I get that, but there's not a cycle to human life in the way in which Eastern religions think of it. Eastern religions have that you, you're you born and you live for a little while and you work hard and you strive and then you die and then... Do, Depending on how you lived your life, you're, you spend some time in never, never Land somewhere or other, I don't know, and then you're reincarnated, and you might be reincarnated at a lower system or a higher system, depending on how you lived your previous life. That's not the view of Christian living. Christian living is, I am born, I am made in my mother's womb, I am knit together, the psalmist says, I'm put together, and then I am born, and then I, I, I live my life on a trajectory that's, that, in, that is fully engaged with what God wants me to do. And, and I have a place to go. I'm not just trying to get out of this cycle. Over, I've got an end goal in mind. Namely to worship God forever and to proclaim his name. You know, sometimes I get concerned about even our own country. I think we've kind of bought into this eastern view of just, well, we can, if we could only be more enlightened, it would be all better. You know, we'll try. We 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 have we we believe in reincarnation every four years in this country. (laughs) We do. If we just get the right man, right person sitting behind the desk in the Oval Office, then it's going to be better. Well, that's a nice hope and it's a nice you know goal for the future. I get that, and we vote accordingly. But in the long run, who sits behind that desk? has one thing, they should be doing one thing. What can we do to cause the work of God to be made evident in our land? Now, I know you're not supposed to say that in a politically correct world, but I'm telling you this. Christians, we have a responsibility to say, what are we doing as the people of God to influence our nation for for God's purposes? And that if we will do that, we have a bigger goal in mind than just uh, watching from afar. And in that regard, I gotta tell you, friends, the church has to set the pace. We have to be the ones who say, we're going to move forward and we're going to set the pace for how in which the ways in which our world can be better. We have a, we have a responsibility. N.T. Wright, phenomenal theologian out of Great Britain, puts it this way. What you do in the present by painting, preaching, singing, sewing, praying, teaching, caring for the needy, loving your neighbors as yourself. What you do now, what, what you're doing now will last into God's future. These activities are not simply ways of making the present life a little more bearable. They are part of what we may call building for God's kingdom. We have a responsibility as the church to say, God, how can we help usher in your plan for the cosmos? Because when we do that, we get it. we're get we not worried about this flying scroll anymore. Here at First Christian, I, I want to show you some ways this morning in which we're trying to do this. Um, and ways in which we say, well, how come in our corner of the world, whether you know, we have a corner of the world in Kenya, we have a corner of the world here in the community and so forth, how are we trying to do this? I want you to see a video right now. that comes right out of Kenya. We just had a team over there involved in seeing what we can do to set do things right on behalf of God's people, on behalf of God's plan for the folk of Maasai land. We work in a little area called Kajiado in the southeast portion of Kenya. You watch the video screens and you'll get a sense of what we're doing over there.
1: Several years ago, FCC began a unique partnership with our missionaries, Lynn and Dory Kazir, who serve in Kenya. This partnership has included several mission trips to assist them in serving the Maasai people who live in southern Kenya. The focus of our most recent trip was to provide medical clinics in outlying areas where medical care is largely unavailable. You know, we went with a handful of suitcases full of medications and supplies, not really knowing exactly what to expect. And then over four days, we saw probably about 700 people. Um, Some came from nearby villages, some came from long distances, hard to say, and basically went through all of our medications that we had and tried to help out in whatever way we were able to, whether that was a small contribution or, or more, sometimes a little hard to say. Another major goal for the trip was to continue building relationships with the Maasai. In doing so, we learned many important lessons. When they invited us to their home, we got to go to a BOMO on one of the last days. And even though they had so very little, everything they had, they put out their best for us, um, down to the boiled eggs or bananas or just the bread and the, the sandwich spread. Everything that they gave to us, they served us in a way, as if they were serving us filet mignon. I mean, it was, it was so, um, so gracious the way they treated every one of us, like we were the most important person that, the, that was coming to see them that day. Going on such a trip is a challenge, and many members of the team had to make major sacrifice in faith in order to go. It is amazing to see how God rewarded their faith.
0: I think more than
1: ever in this group, I could see that God had prepared our hearts in advance uh, to work together as a team. Um, And when we got there, um, everything just seemed to gel. We had all kinds of different individual problems and uh, trials that we faced while we were there. Yet at the end of every day, um, we were able to come together and debrief a little bit uh, and uh, talk to each other about what was really in our hearts and our minds. And it was amazing how God helped us to work through our own individual problems through each other. And as a result, build us together closer as a group than you have ever seen any group here, even a church. Um, That was the biggest, that was one of the biggest things. God stretched us way beyond where we thought we could go and yet he made us stronger as a group and as individuals. One highlight from the trip was joining with the Maasai pastors and believers for worship. It was really incredible seeing another culture praise and worship. They actually would stand up and dance in the aisles and circle around. Uh, Holy Spirit was definitely present at that moment with all of us, even though we couldn't communicate very well with each other, but we knew what each other were feeling, and we were all worshiping the same God. We praise God for the opportunity he gave us to serve him as we serve the Maasai. We also thank you for allowing us to serve on your behalf. Please know that lives are being changed and the gospel of Jesus Christ is being spread in Maasai land. There is still work to be done and we will follow God's leading for the future.
0: So on this Thanksgiving weekend, I do want to say to you as First Christian Church, thank you for sending those folk. And for the role and the impact we had on the lives of those people in Kenya and the role we continue to have. I, um, I really do give thanks to God for that. I like one of the last shots you saw there was taken from a church service. You see where they had their hands stretched out? And that's, that's their way of praying and extending a blessing. They, they actually do this thing at the end of the service and they rub their hands together and they collect all the blessings of God and then they throw them at you. It's really a cool thing. And I, I like this image right here, us reaching out and saying, okay, to the people in our, small, in our small corner of the world in Kenya, we reach into your lives and we pray for you. We do the same thing at Parsons School. You know, we've got ministry going a quarter of a mile down the road here in a public school. Because why? Because we know God's got a plan and that we're working towards filling out that plan. I I just want to say thank you again for something and that is that um, this year we're going to give all the kids at Parsons um, a t-shirt. There's like 300 kids over there. They're all getting a t-shirt because we're their school sponsor, okay? And they're all getting a book and on your behalf we've already bought all that. And it's ready to go. And if you'd like to help us wrap some 300 gifts, um, come on. We'd love to see you on the 14th of December, a couple of Saturdays away. And and the goal being, and it's fascinating. I asked, I said, hey, guys, can you get me a copy of the book? Or a book that's, because every kid's getting a different book. And this is, ironically, one about Africa. And it's got about these people going to a BOMA and all that sort of stuff. Really cool stuff. So if you want to join us uh, for uh, wrapping for... Uh, not not wrapping, you get the idea, wrapping as in Christmas gifts, okay? And then we've got another thing coming up that's really kind of cool, again, a way in which we're stretching our hands, saying, how can we have an impact upon the lives of young people in our church? By God's grace, we seem to be outgrowing our student center building or room. And so we're kind of splitting up that group. And they're going to now have two different services. They have a service that meets at 10.50 on Sunday mornings. We're now going to duplicate that on, on Saturday nights at 5 o'clock in the little island house across, in, you know, we affectionately call it the island house in the middle of the parking lot. And uh, they're calling it crowded house at least. We're going to crowd as many kids as we can in there until the fire marshal shows up or we decide he should show up, one or the other. And, um, Lane, you didn't hear that. Go, nah, nah, nah. <laughs> So uh, how are we reaching our hands? I I need to tell you something in this regard, uh, something, a little correction that we brought into the life of our church. At this time of the year, uh, the the habit of First Christian Church is to be this kind of church and to see how can we help people. And last year, uh, during the season, we had all kinds of stuff going on to the to the end that we were quite scattered in what we were doing and when we got to January and as staff we were looking at how did December go, we were kind of embarrassed about what we did for you or to you or with you, can I be honest? You maybe didn't notice it but we certainly did in retrospect. There were lots of departments that had different kind of endeavors, giving endeavors going on. We had. You know, we had toys in one department, we had coats being delivered, you know, being given in another department, we had food being given, and we had all these kinds, we had the Parsons Project, we wanted you to buy books, and, and the reality is we realized it was way too scattered, and it was like, if you would have participated in all those projects, it must have felt like the church was coming and digging in your pockets every other day. And we want to, I don't want to apologize for that, but I want to, in the sense, I want to acknowledge that. We didn't do it the best way, and so as we got ready to think about the giving season of 2013, we thought, can we approach this a different way? And so, in your bulletin today, you'll notice our, our, if you will, our attempt to correct that, not misguided in any way, but just to find a better way to do kind of this year-end stretching of our hands. We have this program, this Give 2013. and rather than kind of coming and dinging you a bunch of times for a bunch of different projects, here's what we have in mind. Let's do one project together. And so if we can raise some money here together today and in the weeks ahead, I'm we're not taking an offering today, but I want you to take this home and pray about it. Um, we, we have three kids from that little village that grew up in dung huts that are very intelligent. And we've, they were, they were, you saw the pictures of the kids in uniforms. They came through that school Two of them are in nursing school. One of them is in medical school. The guy who's in medical school has finished his undergraduate degree, and he is um, two years into his six-year medical degree. We think we can fund their education from top to bottom, and in doing so, they can come back to that little village, and where we have our medical team, they can be there permanently. And they've agreed to do that. So we want to, if we can put $35,000 towards that, and then if we can put $15,000 toward our own scholarship fund that we use to send... Young people from our congregation to Bible school or to seminary, we want to do that. So over the next few weeks, I'm going to see, can we raise $50,000 together, folks, and use that in those scholarship areas, thinking about how in real life we can impact lives of kids, young people, and then in the future, they can impact other people as well on behalf of First Christian Church. If we raise more than $50,000, we'll put the rest of it in its entirety to the, to the mortgage on the church. But the focus is on these, on these ways in which we can be this kind of people, saying we're going we're to usher in God's kingdom. And so give some thought to that in the coming days, please, all right? And uh, we'd like to hear from you. In, in, in all this regard, I, um, I want to conclude this whole series on the minor prophets by saying that here's what has become quite plain to me, and that is that we as the people of God have to say, that what we've learned is that God wants to be engaged in our lives. We see it in the people of 721 BC as the Assyrians are coming and God says, hey, if you'll hang with me, the Assyrians won't come and they didn't do it. In 586, if you'll hang with me, the Babylonians won't overrun you. Regardless of the time, here's my complete observation, that if we will walk with God, blessings follow out of, after that and life is a whole lot better. And in God's economy, when we get engaged with God, and as we walk with him, every faithful act, I put it this way, every faithful act of love builds and sustains the fabric of God's plan. You know, we have a responsibility. You guys are wondering why, what I'm doing with this shirt, right? Let's see if I can get all the pins out. You know, whenever you get a new shirt out and you put it on before it goes through the wash, you always wonder, Man, ow, I just poked myself, I'm always afraid of that, and you know you got to unwrap everything and make sure all the pins are out and all. Why do they have so much cardboard? Do you ever wonder that, guys? You got all this cardboard of paper, cardboard. All this stuff that you've got in a shirt like this, this wonderful fabric. If I got it all. Here's the reality, guys. You get these shirts and you go, Oh, I'd love to try it on and I'd love to wear it. And so you said, Why did you just rip a perfectly good shirt? That's the question, minor prophets. That's the question that God was asking his people. I gave you a perfectly good world and you keep tearing it up. Why are you doing that? Why are you tearing up this world? You know, and in, throughout the minor prophets, there's this there's this understanding that's in Hebrew. This is the word. The word, two words, tikum olam. It means that if you walk with me, you have the responsibility of mending a torn world. And friends, when we walk with God, this is the world we face—a perfectly good world torn apart—and it's our responsibility. To see what we can do to mend it. I know some of you are thinking, man, if I could get that shirt from him, there's a way I could sew that, and whoever I give it to is going to have to wear a sweater the rest of the time when they would. But they could have that new shirt. The mending of the world started with the coming of Jesus Christ. Now it's our responsibility to do it. Let's step into that this Christmas season, see what we can do to mend the lives around us, and to be people who step into all that God has for this world. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, enable us to walk with you at all times. The people of ancient Israel didn't do that, and they ended up in trouble as a result. Forgive us of our sin, Lord, individually, forgive us of our sin. Collectively, as a people, forgive us, Lord.